At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. You'll find Lamentations in, your Old Test- in the Old Testament. And we have the opportunity, as we started last week, we're going to be journeying together through the book of Lamentations over the next several weeks. And I'm excited that, to have the opportunity to look at this um, often overlooked Old Testament work uh, that the prophet Jeremiah writes as a poem as he expresses his grief and sorrow over, over sin and over um, the, the suffering that he sees in his world at that time. And you know, I was reminded this week of just the different times throughout history in which uh, our American uh, nation has gone through seasons of suffering. I'm reminded this week of the, the day after the United States was deliberately attacked by the Naval and Air Forces of Japan in Pearl Harbor, Franklin, our President Franklin D. Roosevelt, said this. He said that December 7th, 1941 is a day that will live in infamy. For on that day, 90 Japanese aircraft attacked the American naval bases at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. This surprise attack lasted about an hour, which destroyed several large American battleships and killed 2,390 U.S. servicemen and civilians. The day was filled with chaos, devastation, and destruction. And that day was a gut punch to every American. That attack left Americans angry. It left Americans weeping, full of sorrow, lamenting, and looking to God for answers. I remember another day that will live in infamy in the United States history, and that was September 11th, 2001. I'll never forget, I was a seminary student at the time, and we had just broken class, and we were all headed over to chapel. And as I was walking through the student center, I saw a bunch of people just huddled around a TV, and and everyone was glued to the TV. And as I began to look, I saw that one of the, the towers in New York City was already ablaze, that one of the planes had already crashed into the tower. And then as I watched, I saw the second plane crash into the tower. And in that moment, it was almost as though I was stunned. Do you guys remember where you were and what you were doing on September 11th? Do you remember the emotions and the feelings as we had questions of like, how could this happen? Why is this happening? What did we do to deserve this? And then we began thinking about all the family members and all the people that were, that were in danger's way and people that were passing away and dying And over the next several hours, even days, I was glued to the TV, as every other American was. And as we watched the devastation and the destruction and the suffering, it was overwhelming. And for a moment, our nation was united in mourning. Our nation was lamenting the fact that some evil and atrocity had just taken place and we were all witnesses of it and some even experienced the devastation personally. But if you can remember just for a moment how you felt on 9-11, 
This is a similar way to what Jeremiah is feeling after he is experiencing another day that will live in infamy in Jewish history. This was the day in 57 BC that Jerusalem was completely and under destroyed. The Babylonian army had come and they had sacked and, and besieged the city and taken all the people captive and made them uh, go into captivity into Babylon. It was this day in 57 BC that Jeremiah now is writing the book of Lamentation. He's writing this poetic writing to express his laments, to mourn and even protest against the destruction of Jerusalem. We began taking a look at this book last week and we've started out this series entitled Good Morning, Taking Our Sorrow to the Savior. Last week we began looking at the best way that we can respond to suffering and pain in this life is to bring our suffering and pain to the Lord, to cry out to God. Because we need to understand in this life we have suffering. In this life we go through difficulties. In this life there's devastation, there's destruction, and there's death. And the world outside has no category of how to deal with mourning and how to deal with grief. But God, who is our gracious God, has given us a category for how to deal with suffering and grief and how to deal with sorrow. He's given us the gift of lament. And lament is, is best used through the language of prayer. Last week I gave you a definition of lament. The definition of lament is, is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. God has given us the ability to express our deep pain and our sorrow as we see the dealings of this world lay out before us that we can come to the Lord in our pain and pray that leads to trust. Last week, we took a look at the four steps of lament. We begin to lament by turning to God in prayer. That's our, our first direction, is we turn from our pain and our situation, and we put our eyes squarely on Jesus, and we or just onto the Lord, and we turn to him in prayer. And second, this is what we're going to see today. This is the, the step of lament that, that uh, we're going to walk through as we look at Lamentations chapter 2, is that of bringing a complaint as we look at the world around us, we see the unfairness and the unjustness and the pain of the world. We are to bring that complaint to God, saying, God, do you not see, do you not know what we are feeling and what we are experiencing? So we turn to God in prayer. We bring complaint. Third, we ask boldly. We come to the Lord with our bold requests, asking him to intercede, asking him to do something. And then fourth, we choose to trust even in the midst of our pain. You know, we all go through seasons of suffering in our lives and we all uh, have different ways that we normally respond. And one natural response when you go through a time of suffering or disaster is to try to identify who the enemy is. Right, don't we do that? We wanna know who is at fault, who has done this to me so that we can focus our eyes on the enemy so that we can do something about that, right? Think, think back to Pearl Harbor. Who was the enemy of Pearl Harbor? Well, Japan, right? Who, who was the uh, enemy during September 11th? It was Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. But now we come to the destruction of Jerusalem 
And who is it that Jeremiah identifies as the enemy? Who is the enemy that has brought destruction upon the people of God and upon the city of God? Well, today what we're going to see as we unpack this passage is that we're going to see a side of God that many people want to deny and many people want to reject. You see, if we look at God as though he were a coin, right? There's, there's one side of God and then there's another side of God. And so many people want to focus on the, the front side of God that talks about God's love, his mercy, and his grace, which he is all of those things. He is generous. He is giving. He is loving. He is accepting. But if we stop there, we miss the full identity of who God is. To every coin, there's a back side. There's a dark side. And not that God's back side is, is a side that's dark, full of sin, but it's a side that has to deal with sin. Because of God's love and because of God's righteousness and because of God's holiness, we have to understand because of those things, God has to exercise discipline for sin. God cannot be holy and just if he allows sin to go unpunished. And so as we look at this passage today, what we're going to see is that God to Israel feels like he's the enemy. Right? We, sometimes we go through life and we, we feel as though God is angry at us and God is, God is no longer patient with us and God is exercising his judgment upon us because of the sufferings of life that we go through. And we feel this way. And today we're going to see how God levels his judgment because of his holiness. How God exercises his justice and discipline. And how he does this even upon those whom he loves. And the question today as we wrestle with and we, we see this side of God that so many people want to reject, the reality is, is, is we've got to accept God in his fullness. We can't just pick and choose the pieces of God and the pieces of Jesus that, that we want to accept. We have to accept the fullness of who he is because once we accept the fullness of who he is, we can understand how to better respond to this great God. Today as we look at this passage, what I want us to see is that when, when God becomes the enemy, we must cry out. When God becomes the enemy, we must cry out. So together, as we look at uh, Lamentations chapter 2 this morning, I want us to spend some time this morning understanding the righteous side of God that deals with our sin but leads us to repentance. God deals with our sin, but yet it leads us to repentance. Let's look in, in verse 1. We're going to see three truths from this passage today. Lamentation 2, beginning in verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel, and he has not remembered his footstools in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughters of, of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has over 
he has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in your eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. What I want us to see in these first few verses is that God is righteous in pouring out his anger. God is righteous in pouring out his anger. In verse one, we see here, we're given insight into the reality of the devastation and the destruction that has taken place because the Lord is angry. Specifically, we see that the Lord is angry at Israel. And why is it that the God of the universe is angry at at Israel? Why is he so fierce in his anger? And why is he bringing about such destruction? He's bringing about this destruction because Israel has continually broken the covenant that God has made with them. Through Moses, we see that God enters into a special kind of covenant relationship with Israel that has some provisions and has some stipulations. If we go back to Exodus chapter 9, beginning, or Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 4, we see this covenant that is established. This is what it says back in Exodus chapter 19. It says, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is God speaking through through Moses and, and establishing the relationship. And he says, if you obey and if you keep my covenants, then you will be my special people. And I will have a special kind of protection for you. My hand will be with you if you worship me alone. And as we read the Bible from, from Exodus to Lamentation, Scripture God continually shows us God is continually faithful to his covenant. God is continually there helping his people, supporting his people, caring for them. But as we also look from the pages from Exodus to Lamentations, we see God is continually faithful, but we see Israel is continually unfaithful. They continually turn away from God and disobey God's words and worship other gods. And God, even in his love for them, has sent several prophets, numerous prophets to come and tell them to say, people of God, turn back to God. Remember the covenant that I made with your forefathers. Remember that and turn for now is the season of grace. And sometimes they would turn and God would relent and, and then they would turn back and go their own separate ways. But now... The time for warning has passed. And God has had enough of the sin and disobedience. God's holiness has been defended, and now God is angry. And Israel now is enduring the judgment and wrath of God. Because of God's holiness, he is justifiably and righteously angry at the presence of sin among the people of Israel. And so he's right to ask. And what we see in verses one through four are several metaphors that that, uh, Jeremiah laments as he's complaining to God about how God's position and God's disposition to Israel has changed. God's disposition to Israel has changed from being for Israel now to being against 
Israel. God has removed Israel from his presence. The beginning of verse says that Israel is now under a cloud. And this cloud that they're under is a cloud of judgment. Remember in old, other places in the Old Testament that the, the cloud of God showed up as, as God's people were wandering in the wilderness. The cloud of God showed up to direct them and so that God's people would know that God was with them and that he could be trusted. And so they followed the cloud by day. But now the cloud represents something completely different, which once was a sign of God's presence and God's peace among his people, now is a sign of his judgment. God is not for Israel now. God is against Israel. Israel was once close to God, but now they've been cast down from heaven Once they received mercy, now they are without mercy. Once they had peace with God, now all they're going to know is the wrath of God. Because of their disobedience, God is removing his protection over them. Remember what God told Israel in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now we see even that right hand that was protecting the nation of Israel is now being removed. He has withdrawn his right hand from the face of the enemies. God has removed all of Israel's defenses. He has made them susceptible to attacks. In his wrath, he has broken down all their strongholds. And by verse four, we see that God has become the attacker. God is not just sitting back passionately or passively allowing his people to sin. No, God is becoming the attacker. And we see this imagery that he's bent his bow like an enemy. God's right hand, which once was a sure sign of defense, is now in the hand of the enemy archer who is taking the bow and pulling it back and has Israel in his sights, his own people. We also see it continues on that God's fire that once was a symbol of his presence and blessing back in Exodus now has turned against Israel and God has burned and consumed the whole city. Total destruction. And all of this happens as a result of Israel's sins. What we see is, is horrible imagery of God pouring out his anger upon a people. And though the Babylonian army were the instruments for this attack that destroyed Jerusalem and took all of Israel captive, God makes it clear in verse 17 that he is the one that's actually sovereignly in control of all of these things. Look at me in verse 17. This is what he says. The Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. This is tough for us to deal with. We, we don't like this side of God. I remember as a kid growing up that there were two sides to my father too. There was the very, very tender side of my father. There were the times my father would come home from work and I know he was exhausted and he would sit in his chair and watch TV. But that was also always an invitation when he was sitting in that chair that we could approach him and that we could sit and just rest with him. He didn't want us to talk at that time. 
He just wanted us to be in his presence. And so I would love after you come home from work, crawling up into the chair, the recliner chair with him, and just resting with my head on my dad's chest. That was a precious place. But there was also a time, times when I would do wrong. And in an instant, my loving father would become a very hard man because I deserved discipline. And there were times in which I saw my father's righteous anger, my, my father's, I was the, the, the recipient of my father's discipline. It wasn't because he didn't love me, but I didn't like seeing that side of my father in much the same way. We don't like seeing this side of God, but it's there. It has to be there. Because otherwise he's not loving. So the purpose of Lamentation chapter 2 is not to just inform us about God's holiness. It's not to just give us insight into his wrath and judgment. It's not so that we grow intellectually about uh, or deepening the study of the nature of God. This moment of judgment is not meant to be studied. The purpose of the pa- this passage is to move us towards mourning so that we understand the severity of our sin and so that we understand that our separation from God because of our sinfulness should cause us to mourn. The response to this passage would be like visiting two different types of museums. I love going to Washington, D.C., and it's full of museums. And one of my favorite museums to go to is uh, the Smithsonian, the history, the, um, uh, what's, what's the, the Museum of Natural History. If you've ever been there in Washington, D.C., you walk in and you see all these amazing things. And as you, you walk and you see how God has created all these things, your appreciation for God grows because you're able to see the, magnificent of, the magnificentness of God. And you're moved in, in a different way. You, you grow in your appreciation for who God is and how he's created all things. But your response to the, the Natural History Museum is very different than it would be to visit another museum. I don't know if you've ever been there, but in D.C. we have the Holocaust Museum that shows the devastating destruction that took place of God's people at the hands of Nazi Germany. Another time that would, another time in history that would live in infamy. And as you walk through the Holocaust Museum, your response is very different than it is as you walk through the natural history. They're, they're meant to invoke different responses. As you walk through the Holocaust Museum, you see evil rearing its ugly head. You see innocence and and people, children and women being slaughtered at the hands of angry people. Where sin left unleashed continues to have absolute destruction and devastation. You go to the Holocaust Museum not because you just want to be informed, but you go to the Holocaust Museum so that you learn not to make the same mistake again. This is what God is doing through the nation of Israel, through the destruction of Jerusalem. He is allowing for all space and time for this to be a time for God's people to look back and see the devastating destruction of sin. And that God, in his love and in his grace, must 
decide and must deal with sin. And when God steps in and deals with sin, it is devastating. And he is right to do so because of his righteousness. I think as we look back at the nation of Israel, I think the greatest factor that, got, that led to God being, becoming angry at Israel and experienced the wrath of God is because they lost the fear of God. It's one of the greatest, the worst things that we can do is, is to lose the fear of God. The current generation of Jews in 56 BC thought that they were immune to the discipline of God. They saw how God had graciously overlooked the, their sin in the past, how the people of God had continually worshipped other gods and, and had uh, even committed adultery to other gods. And they saw how God had graciously overlooked the rebellion in the past and they believed that God was obligated to bless them no matter how they lived. They believed that they no longer had to give an account for their lives before God Therefore, they lived as though God would not punish their sin. Church, hear this today. God still punishes sin. God still punishes your rebellion as both corporately, as, as a church body, in our sin. God still brings about his judgment through his justice. And even in your own personal life, the sins that you think God doesn't see and you, you think because God is gracious, there's going to come an end to his graciousness. Do not lose the fear of God. Let us not walk in this season during this time in history and lose the fear of God. Of God. Yes, when we truly believe, we are truly sealed until the day that we stand before the Lord. But God still is a loving, gracious God who disciplines those whom he loves. Let us not forget that. The church and Christians of our day run the risk of following the same mistakes as Israel. Let us know that God is loving and merciful, but he's also holy and righteous. The second thing we want to see from this passage is that God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. Look at me in verse 5. It says, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all the palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. Laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of the, a festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins, ruins the wall of daughter Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. The beauty of Lamentation 2 is that each chapter, specifically in chapter 2, is written in the form of an alphabetic acrostic. 
What that means is that this, this chapter is broken down into 22 sections. Each section is, begins with the successive letter of the alphabet. And so in essence, what, what, what uh, Jeremiah is doing in chapter 2 is he's saying that the suffering of God's people is complete from A to Z. The suffering, that, uh, the, the suffering that was complete because sin has corrupted every area of their life. We see in this passage that everyone was guilty and everyone is without excuse. It didn't matter how the people of God identified themselves. If they decided that they were of Zion or they were of Jacob or they were of Judah, they were all guilty And it also doesn't matter, we see who who they were, if they were a king, ruler, or priest. Everyone was guilty against sinning against God. And so to deal with their sin, the Lord becomes like an enemy. He is so angry that he destroys everything within her. As the great benefactors of God's blessing, Jerusalem itself was a beautiful city with vibrant life that was protected by a massive wall. The city also contained the temple. And this was significant because the presence of God was there in the temple. It was the place where the people of God met with God. It was the place where their sins found atonement through sacrifice. But all of these things that were significant to God's people The people were no longer concerned with their sin and they believed that they were invincible. But now God systematically destroys everything that the people of God looked to for safety, for security, and significance. The walls and the gates of the city were utterly destroyed. The houses and the palaces were pillaged and they were burned. The glorious temple was destroyed. And the place where people met with God and offered sacrifices for their sins was done away with. Sin had infiltrated every area of their lives and God destroys everything. We come to the end of verse eight and it looks very, very bleak. We see a side of God that takes sin and rebellion very seriously and he punishes sin absolutely. You see, sin has to be punished Even in God's glorious plan to redeem sinful man, this plan did not end with the destruction of Jerusalem. But the destruction of Jerusalem pointed to a further time when both the wrath and the wondrous love of God will be present at the same time. The greatest place where the wrath of God and the wondrous love of God commingle together is best seen in the cross of Calvary. We see both sides of God at work. On the the front side of the cross, we see God pouring out his wrath on his sinless son. We see the the wrath and the anger and the, the punishment for all sin being poured on sinless Jesus. Isaiah chapter three gives us a vivid imagery of what's taking place on the cross, what Jesus was doing on our behalf. Isaiah writes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own ways. And the Lord on him laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Yeah, the, the destruction of Jerusalem was one of those moments reminding God's people of seriousness of sin. But the cross of Calvary was the completion of God's work for our sin. Your sin and my sin, your rebellion, your lack of forgiveness, your going your own way, all of that was placed on Jesus and he paid the punishment for our sin. And I want you to know, just as God was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem, God is responsible for the death of Jesus for our sake. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, being Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So on the front side of the cross, we see the wrath of God being poured out. The wrath that was due us, it's poured out on Christ. But then on the back side of the cross, we hear the truths of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he willingly gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the message of hope for us today. Even though Jeremiah and Lamentation doesn't give us hope, right? But we have the rest of the gospel. And, and as much as I would love to just sit in the fact of saying you're dead in your trespasses and sins, God's wrath and his judgment are coming towards you, it would not be right of me not to share the hope of the gospel. Because the hope of the gospel is, is that you're no longer, through faith in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you can become a child of God. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in the, and trust in the work of Jesus? If you haven't, then today I encourage you to do so. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. The world constantly wants to minimize God's holiness and downplay the consequences of sin. We are constantly told that God doesn't care if we sin a little bit. That all that matters is as long as we're a good person. Doesn't matter if you if you do bad, if you do the little white like sins and, and all of that, as long as you're you're a good person, you're okay. We're taught to believe that our sin is not as bad as someone else. But I want you to understand that you need to take heed of the warnings of God today. Don't be like the Israelites that heard the warnings from God and ignored them until it was too late. Because God disciplines those whom he loves. God deals with our sin completely. And lastly, I want us to see is that God is working to bring us to repentance. Look with me in verse 19. Jeremiah cries out, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Jeremiah is lamenting because he sees the suffering as severe. He witnesses the suffering of hungry children on every street. Now it's hard for us to watch any type of suffering, right? We want to turn our face 
from all types of suffering. But what's worse, the worst type of suffering that we, we see is when little children suffer. And Jeremiah is saying that he sees this. He's seeing little children suffer in the street because they are hungry. This is a place of deep sorrow and lament, not knowing if God will ever bring healing to the city of God. He doesn't know if God will ever be gracious again, but Jeremiah turns to God and asks him to do the only thing that he can do. He cries out and begs God for grace in the midst of his justice. This is the proper way that we are to respond to suffering. It's not to try to fix it, not try to control it, not try to manage it in our own strength and power. But when we walk through seasons of suffering, we come and bring it to the Lord. And I love the disposition and the heart disposition of repentance that we see in Jeremiah. He gives us three steps of repentance. First of all, he says, arise. Instead of being downcast and, and keeping your eyes focused in on your circumstances and your situations, Instead of trying to fix it yourself and looking for healing from this world, instead we are to look up, arise, take our eyes and look to God. For he is our help. And then second of all, not only are we are to arise, but to look to God, but we are to cry out in the night. We are to lift our hands of surrender and saying, Lord, I'm in the midst of the situation. And many times I'm in the midst of the situation because of my own sin. And I'm feeling your discipline right now. But I'm going to lift my hands to you and saying, God, I surrender you. My voice is going to cry out to you, not only in the day, but it's going to cry out to you in the night. Lord, please be gracious. And then third, pour out your heart like water. We bring our hearts before the Lord and give him control in all circumstances. We say, Lord, here is my heart. I give it to you. Verse 19 is a call to repent. It's a call to repent from self-centered, self-reliant lives where we turn and we beg God for mercy. You know, a question that naturally arises from this passage is that does God still discipline his children or, his Christ, or Christians or the church when we waywardly wander? Does God still discipline in the same way? And to answer that question, we must first understand that God's discipline in 56 BC was unique to God's plan for Israel. So we can't say that God disciplines us in exactly the same way, but Christians and the church do also experience the discipline of God. We are not free from the discipline of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 reminds us of this, that the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. On an individual basis, God is working in your life to bring, uh, to bring about discipline for your repentance. And I think that there are two types of discipline that the Lord uses in the life of our, the believer. The first type of discipline is instructive discipline. This is the, the, the type of discipline that God allows us to go through where, where we don't understand the reasons for it, where we don't have a clear-cut reason, like there's not a cause and effect of our suffering. Sometimes we go through seasons of suffering where we don't understand, but we do have to understand that our suffering ultimately God is using to glorify himself. So this is instructive discipline, that God is um, using his discipline to show us more about his character and somehow is using our life for his glory. 
But the type of discipline that's described here in Lamentations chapter two is that of corrective discipline. Corrective discipline is the Lord allows suffering to be the consequences of our sin. And not only are we individually responsible for our own sin, we are also corporately or as the family of God responsible for our lives. If you had the time this afternoon to read through Revelation chapter 2 through 3, you would see that Jesus specifically calls out the congregational sin of seven different churches that were found in Asia Minor. And with each of these letters that he writes a a letter of warning through um, the Apostle John, he gives each one of them a warning. He says, I see your deeds and I see what you're doing, but repent over and over and over again. For example, to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus that lost their first love, Jesus warns them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Over and over and again, in each one of these letters, God gives them a word of correction, calls them to repent. And then he sums them all up in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. He says, for those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. One of the famous hymns that I love so much is entitled, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's a remember, it's a great song that remembers God's grace and his mercy and his love in our lives. But there's a verse or a chorus in there that has always struck a chord with my heart. And it's this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Each one of us in our own lives and as a church, we are prone to wander. Nobody drifts into holiness. If left unchecked, we won't drift to being more like Christ. Instead, we will drift to be more like the world. We become more selfish and we become more self-centered And as we drift, God's discipline enters into our lives as a means to bring us to repentance. Let me ask you this question as our worship team is coming. In this season of life, where are you personally prone to wander? Maybe you've had a wandering heart Maybe your source of security is is transitioning away from God to to things like money or relationships or to your job. And and maybe you've just felt the slow fade in your life. And as we've been talking today, the Spirit of God has been speaking. He's been bringing it to mind. Maybe you've slipped into addiction. Maybe you've stopped pursuing a deep relationship with the Lord. And you've turned to other things. Where have you been prone to wander? I'm going to give us space in our service this morning to deal with our business before the Lord. I want you in just the quietness of these moments to ask yourself the question, ask the Lord, Lord, where am I prone to wander? Where am I leaving the God that I love? And as God reveals those areas of your life to you, repent. I mean, you can make an altar right there at your seat and do your business before the Lord, or you can change your disposition and come to the altar down here. 
Because there's sometimes there's a changing of our posture before the Lord sometimes allows us to feel and to express our love for God and our disappointment in our own sin in a different way. And so we're gonna open up this altar for a season of individual repentance. And then we'll close our service together with a time of corporate repentance. Let me pray. Father, we thank you, God, uh, for the gift of lament. But Father, we're also very aware that each one of us are tempted by the things of this world. Just as Israel was tempted to give their worship over to other things, so are we. So Father, in the quietness of these moments, use your spirit to speak to our hearts and may we be moved to repentance. Help us to be open and help us to respond in these moments. Father, we see in your word today that you take sin very seriously. And so, Father, we come to you this morning as your church, as your people, as your children that you have died and redeemed for. Father, we come knowing that we, as your people, are prone to wander. Father, in some way, we may even be walking through a season of your discipline. As we even look around this place this morning and see so many of our brothers and sisters not here. So, Father, we repent. We repent, Father, as your people. For, God, we have been guilty of allowing people to fall through the cracks, of being so concerned about our own lives and our own daily activities that we have forgotten about our brothers and sisters that are hurting. Father, forgive us. 
Give us eyes to see. Bring to our mind those that call this home that are not here so that we may go and seek them. Father, forgive us for allowing the disunity of our world to invade our church. Father, forgive us for those whom we call brother for us distancing ourselves from them or isolating ourselves from them. Father, forgive us. Break down the walls of hostility and help us once again to receive our brother. Father, forgive us for haphazardly discipling people, for just assuming that through programs and through ministries that people will come to know you. Father, forgive us. Help us, Father, in your power and in your strength to move ourselves into the lives of others and encourage them to grow and to show them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Father, today we also repent for only focusing in on caring for the poor and needing and not seeking to engage the wicked of our community. Father, please do not allow this to be leveled against us, but have our eyes to see. Though it's easy to care for the needy and poor, it is difficult to care for the wicked. Father, so many times we want to size ourselves up and distance ourselves from those that don't think like us, that don't believe like us, that don't live like us. And Father, I pray in this season of our lives that we would care more for the wicked than we do for our very selves. This is what our world desperately needs to see. It's not us concerned for our safety or our security, but what our world needs to see is that we love them. Not that we live in our little insulated, isolated Christian communities and Christian lives, but we care for those that have been deeply blinded by this world. So Father, give us a heart for the wicked. We repent and ask God that you would renew our fervor, that you would renew our strength and that you would move us to take this gospel message of hope to those who desperately need it. Father, hear our prayers today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.